four, three, two, one. Welcome to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love yourself. Just love your neighbor. And if we all did that, our world will be more just and it would be more compassionate. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world through the prism of our Catholic social teaching. You know, the dignity of the human person, the importance of family, participation in civic life, solidarity, the dignity, the rights of workers, care in a special way for those who are oppressed and poor. Those are the values that are part of our Catholic legacy. And when we look at what's going on in the world, we kind of use those values to see how things are going and what we should be weighing in on. In other words, if some of those things are being promoted, we should get on the bandwagon and try to foster those. If, on the other hand, some of those values are being threatened, well, we need to raise our voice and say, no, not so much. We need to kind of reverse course and go in a different direction. Tom Dobbins is with us today, who is uh, the person who gets us all of our wonderful guests who generously give of their time to be with us on Just Love. Yolanda is making sure that you can hear us so that um, our guests are heard and I'm heard and Tom is heard. So, um, so Tom, just uh, generically, um, you know, we're kind of getting into well into spring. We're getting close to summer. So tell our listeners, what have you been up to lately? Uh, lately, we here just uh, a, a lot of, um, uh, you know, just different springtime things. You know, I like to go out. I like to go walking around if I can in the city and, and do stuff. The only problem with senior I found was recently, you know, we've had a lot of rain. <laughs> right. So it's been it's been kind of it's been kind of rainy. I I kind of miss the spring to the, you know, the sunny spring times because, you know, so, that's when I like to know, walk around. As you have been, you know, you talk about you like to kind of walk, um, you know, parade around and kind of <laughs> go outside. Is it would it be fair to say that it's been raining on your parade? It's been raining on my parade, Monsignor, and I'm not happy about it. Like, I get up in the morning on a Saturday, I look outside, and then it's raining, you know? So then I have to go out to bring my umbrella, and, uh, you know, it just, you know, I mean, still, I appreciate all the beautiful greenery. I appreciate the flowers. Flowers are beautiful this spring, but, uh, you know, and I know rain makes flowers, but, you know, maybe if God could send us a little less rain. What's that little little kind of ditty about? spring and rain and flowers oh um, is that oh, you I mean know. April? yeah yeah, go yeah. Ahead. no tom go ahead okay april showers uh april showers bring may flowers yep okay and then the question is what do may flowers bring and the old joke is pilgrims but <laughs> oh oh i didn't know that oh boy oh boy that's, that's good so tom here's what i gotta ask you because i've asked you about it and you were great with regard to it but so i want to know on kind of in the beginning of the Easter season, when you could go out again and go into stores uh, and shopping, mm-hmm. what did you buy anything for yourself since your Lenten uh, practice was over? You know, Monsieur, I actually I haven't um, because we go through a series. We go through this series uh, um, of birthdays and anniversary. My parents' anniversary is in late April. Then my brother's birthday is in late April. And, and so uh, we've had a series of other stuff. So I've been shopping for other people. So I haven't shopped for myself yet, Lindsay, but I can now. So I okay. should make it a point of doing that. What'd you say? <laughs> you were kind of a TJ Maxx person? 
I'm a TJ Maxx person, yeah. And I also like to go down to uh, thrift stores. Like I like to go down to, uh, you know, like I would like to go to um, uh, housing works and stuff like that. So I, I, I don't always buy there, but I always like to go in and shop and kind of look around okay. the stores. They're fun. All right. So, okay. <laughs> so that's uh, that's a good, good deal. So, um Tom, uh, thank you for lining up our guests this week. Uh, why don't we go to our first guest, who is Professor Matt Johnson, a professor of the psychology of marketing at the Holt International uh, Business School. And uh, I'm delighted that um, the Professor uh, Matt Johnson is our, is our guest. Um, so, Professor Johnson, thanks for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Good. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the Holt International Business School. Why don't you begin with yourself? How did you kind of get into this kind of business of being of the psychology of marketing? Yeah, so for me, I've always been really curious about what makes us tick, why we do what we do. Uh, my initial uh, undergraduate degree was in psychology. I went and did a, a PhD in cognitive neuroscience. I spent my mid 20s in. Hey, Tom, Tom, you got another one of these smart guys who's on our <laughs> show. We got to we got to clean up our act because Matt is Matt's got all these words that I don't even know what they mean. So but anyway, thanks for getting us a smart guy, Tom. <laughs> I'm sorry, Matt, I interrupted you. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. So, yeah, most of my uh, most of my mid 20s were really spent in uh, in labs and libraries. I was putting people into. Uh, fMRI machines, these brain scanning uh, uh, apparatus that allow you to sort of eavesdrop on the brain's processes and allow us to really see what's happening under the hood, essentially. And I was I was primarily interested in what allows us to understand and use language and what is it about the structure of the brain and the specialization of the brain that allows us to do that uh, so efficiently. And so after I graduated, uh, I went into the world of business consulting. And it was really there that I, I saw this rich and relatively unexplored connection between neuroscience and business, uh, primarily in marketing. And so that's been my focus really ever since. I'm a professor at Holt International Business School. I'm the author of the book Blindsight, and as well another book coming out this fall called Branding That Means Business. And, and these really aim to apply a neuroscientific lens to the consumer world. Oh, great, Matt. That's a great kind of uh, uh, capsule for our listeners. Tell us a little bit about the Holt International Business School. I have to kind of fess up. I'm not too familiar with it. So, so make me a little smarter, make our listeners a little smarter. Yeah, so we're a specialized business school, specialized in the sense that business really is our focus. And as well, the international element of the experience is, is, uh, is very specific to us as well. So roughly 95% of our student body is international. So really walking into a whole classroom is like walking into the United Nations. We have you know, nearly every country there is represented. Uh, I think our largest concentration with any one country is Germany, and that's something like 5%. Uh, so students are really coming from all corners of the world. And it's really a treat to teach there and conduct research there. Uh, it's a really vibrant community. And so we have campuses, San Francisco, Boston, London, Dubai, and Shanghai. I was previously a professor on the San Francisco campus. I've just moved to the Boston campus. I've also taught on the, the Shanghai campus as well. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very exciting, dynamic place to teach and be a part of. 
Well, Professor Johnson, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us on Just Love today. So um, let me let me kind of give you a broad um, kind of broad ability to defend yourself from an unfair kind of claim that I'm going to make. Okay, so this is your opportunity to defend your yourself. So aren't what you about is manipulating me to buy stuff that I don't need, but is going to cost money and make businesses uh, profit? Uh, it's a great question. So it, it's a question I get a lot uh, because they, you, know, you say neuromarketing, consumer neuroscience, and instantly what we think is you know, giving marketers a deeper understanding of the brain, giving marketers potentially our psychological vulnerabilities when it comes to persuasion. And they essentially have the, the tools to, to press those buttons really more efficiently than ever. And certainly that that is a genuine application. I mean, marketing isn't going to get any worse as it begins to uncover more and more about human psychology and human neuroscience. Uh, what I'm about in my research and in my consulting practice is really availing marketers of a full science of neuromarketing and then also providing ethical frameworks so that uh, this can be harnessed in a, a way that we can all feel good about. Uh, at the end of the day, marketers want to create amazing products and create amazing campaigns. Consumers want amazing products and want to be uh, uh, essentially um, seduced by marketing and advertising and amazing brand storytelling. And there's really no reason why we can't meet in the middle. And I think really neuromarketing is the perspective that's going to get us there. So, um, so Professor Johnson, I mean, I understand marketing and I think most of us do. Could you distinguish for us a little bit the difference between just standard brands marketing and neuromarketing? Sure. Yeah. So we can we can describe marketing as really an exchange of value, right? So the, the company has something of value and they are engaging this process of marketing uh, via the vessel of the brand to be able to uh, convey this value uh, to consumers. Consumers choose to engage in this value exchange. They do this with either their attention can be a value. If we're talking about the attention economy, their, their money can be a value, their time can be a value, and they engage in this value exchange uh, with, with marketing. And so really the neuromarketing perspective is to uh, bring in a neuroscientific understanding to help brands navigate this space more effectively and also, as we spoke about, more ethically as well. So neuromarketing is really two things. So one, it is utilizing a cumulative understanding of the human brain to help address classical marketing questions. So if I'm a brand, you know, I'm thinking about what kind of brand personality do I want to have to appeal to my target consumer? Uh, what kind of products do I want to launch? How do I want to launch them? How do I want to position them? Ultimately, the goal is to appeal to people. And of course, when it comes to the appeal to people, we're talking about human perception. We're talking about you know sensory processing. We're talking about learning. We're talking about memory. We're talking about judgment, decision-making. All of this is the object of study within neuroscience. So that's a huge branch of neuromarketing is really to apply that perspective. The second branch is utilizing neuroscience as a hypothesis testing technique. So if marketers have a specific question, so should we run this 30 second advertisement or this 30 second advertisement or choose this person as our influencer or this person as our influencer, there's a range of 
uh, data at their disposal in terms of classic market research techniques to be able to weigh in on those questions. What neuromarketing brings is another, and I think deeper perspective, which allows us not just to get psychological behavioral data, what people say they're going to do, but now you can actually look at the neuroscientific processes unfolding, which can give us a deeper understanding of, of how to go as marketers. We're speaking with uh, Professor Matt Johnson, uh, a professor of psychology of marketing at the Holt International Business School. And we're speaking about how one uses neuroscience to market um, uh, products and, and other things. Um, so let me, let me ask you this question. You, you know, when I asked, when I asked my kind of question at the beginning, which you said you usually get is like, are you, are marketers trying to manipulate me into buying stuff? You, you, you use something twice, which I want you to speak a little bit about. You talked about an ethical framework for marketing. And if you say a little bit about that, and then I'm going to ask you, so I'll give you a minute or two to think about it. I'm going to ask you to give me an example or two. It could be hypothetical or it could be real life of unethical marketing. So first of all, give our listeners a little sense. What do you mean by ethical marketing? So a lot of the work that I'm working on research-wise is, is on developing a practical ethical framework for neuromarketing. And I think utilizing neuroscience as a basis for this framework. So a lot of the research that's done previously on this and really the guardrails that are up right now are, are uh, really constrained by an ethics of consequentialism. So this idea that, you know, whatever the marketing campaign is, it is good or bad with respect to the ultimate consequences. So there's a lot of, uh, I think, really good constraints that puts on the marketing process. So for example, uh, we don't generally allow for things like bazookas uh, to be sold. And so if you're marketing a bazooka, that has incredible potential to have a lot of negative consequences. So uh, yeah, no B2C bazooka sales. Um, things like cigarettes, of course, you know, fall into this as well, can have some deleterious effects. Uh, alcohol, it's, it's uh, you know, the marketing that is done, at least in the US, you're, you're required to give uh, some, some verbiage to this idea of, of drinking responsibly to limit the negative consequences that could happen. So consequentialism is a fantastic place to start. There's no argument for me there. Uh, what I'm adding to that framework, and which I think has been underlooked, is going beyond consequentialism and really having a ethics of marketing, which also assimilates uh, something I think is very important, which is consumer autonomy. That irrespective of the consequences, the good, bad of the marketing campaign, it really does matter in a deep way, the process which derived that consumer decision. There's a big difference between a uh, consumer decision, which is availed of one's deliberative capacity, and you have all the information, and you are projecting forward how it's going to impact your life, and you have all this information, and then you make a, uh, a, a patient and analytical decision, versus one which is, uh, is influenced by things maybe you're not aware of, that is maybe marketed to you in a state uh, which is of diminished consumer autonomy. Uh, and ultimately, the, the, uh, the, the state in which we're, we're marketed to, the actual uh, neuroscientific presence that we have at that moment, is another component that I'm, I'm layering into this ethical framework. So let, me, so let me now 
go to the next door. Can you give me, I mean, I know you mentioned cigarettes. I know you mentioned that, but can you give us some other examples of what might be unethical marketing? Based sure. not so much on consequentialism, but upon your other, uh, your other framework that you want to introduce. Yeah, so the, the great thing about consumer autonomy is it can be understood at the level of the brain, which is why I think neuromarketing is such an important component here in order to uh, elevate marketing to a more ethical level. So when we're looking at consumer autonomy, there's really two components of it. The first is that we have to uh, be aware of the factors which are going to influence that decision. Uh, so if, if we're not aware of, of these factors, how can we possibly deliberate over them? How can we possibly have autonomy to choose to uh, assimilate those into our decision-making process? So this is why, for example, uh, things like uh, subliminal marketing, which is effective to a certain extent, it's limited, but it is effective to a certain extent, is outlawed in the U.S. and in most other countries because it subverts Matt, our autonomy. Matt, uh, to make me a little smarter and our listeners a little smarter, Tell us what subliminal marketing is. Sure. So under about 300 milliseconds, uh, visual imagery, for example, happens in all sensory domains, but visual imagery is where it's most potent. Under about 300 milliseconds, information that is flashed before us has a potential to influence our emotions, thoughts, and decision-making, even though it doesn't broach conscious awareness. So there's been experiments done, for example, where if you are already thirsty and you have a, a flash on the screen that says, you know, Lipton iced tea, or it says Coke. If you get the Coke message, you're likely to request a Coke. If you get a Lipton message, you're, you're likely to request a Lipton, despite the fact that you have no idea you actually saw that message because it just came so, so quickly. So it's been, I think, a little bit over-exaggerated, the actual potency of subliminal marketing. So it's not that, you know, if you have this at a movie theater, you're not even thirsty, you're just going to get up off like a zombie and, and, uh, and go to the refrigerator. Uh, but if you're already thirsty and you're already sort of on that cusp, it's going to nudge you, you know, slightly one way or another. So that's subliminal marketing. And one of the reasons why it is uh, such an offense ethically is because it subverts our autonomy by not giving us the full set of information by which the decision is made. And so subliminal marking is, is something I think, you know, is, is worthy of our moral opprobrium. And, and we all agree on that. But there's other levels of this existing in our environment, which we don't tend to look at. And we call this in the book, mid-liminal primes. So for example, there's been literally hundreds of experiments showing that the sense, the, the, the olfactory stimulation in an environment can influence our decision-making really outside of our awareness. So for example, if uh, you're in a restaurant and they spray lavender scent, uh, you're more likely to order expensive items off the menu. If you're in a casino and there's vanilla scents, you're, you're more uh, uh, sort of reckless with your money. And they'll interview people after this and they'll say, well, why did you order the filet mignon and not the burger? And I just felt like filet mignon. Nobody ever says, well, it's because it was lavender scent and lavender scent had an unconscious impact on my decision making. And that's why I ordered filet so mignon. Matt, Matt, let me yeah. let me stop you for a second. So, um, you know, I we in the church that, that I'm at, we take up a collection, etc. Um should we be using lavender candles there? And maybe maybe the donations will be a little bit larger. Is that is that is that my takeaway from what you're saying? 
<laughs> if if the goal is to optimize the uh, your, your return on investment, then maybe so. But okay. uh, we'll, we'll have to wait till we get through the rest of the ethical framework to see if you still want to okay. go about it. <laughs> All right. So that that's one way in which our consumer autonomy can be subverted it is a, a lack of sensory information, and it goes beyond subliminal. It's sort of this gray area where these midliminal primes should be considered ethical or not, and and how they should be harnessed. Uh, the other uh, sort of avenue to uh, consumer autonomy. So if we're fully availed of all the sensory information, we have to have the deliberative capacity to be able to analyze these in a full way. And our uh, sort of border case there that exists now is, of course, marketing to children. One of the reasons why we find marketing to children so uh, worthy of our moral opprobrium is that children aren't fully developed yet in terms of their inhibition, their uh, uh, level of uh, ability in terms of, of deliberating over certain processes, about thinking through decisions. Uh, that's why we find marketing to children generally unethical. Um, and again, we have other instances that we're not dealing with in the consumer world that also subvert our autonomy through a lack of deliberative capacity. And we see this a lot when it comes to targeting and online advertisements. So it is possible, and in fact, these, have, these experiments and these practices have been done where enough digital information is picked up on the user of, say, Facebook or Instagram, uh, such that they can tell, one, if that person has a condition like bipolar, and if that person with bipolar is on a upward sort of manic swing, where they are very likely to make impulsive decisions. And if you know that about the person, uh, you can target them with uh, very sort of immediately gratifying advertisements. Fly to Las Vegas, we'll comp your flights, rent a Lamborghini. You know, this, this person otherwise wouldn't be making these decisions, but now their autonomy is diminished because they don't have the deliberative capacity a la their condition. And so they are uh, being marketed to, and I think, an unethical way, uh, again, by subverting consumer autonomy. So, Professor Johnson, let me um, ask uh, about something which I'm sure is on our listeners' mind because it's so it's so prevalent is, you know, if I <clears throat> let's say I want I want to buy some boots. OK, and I go search on the Internet and I look for boots. Well, we all know that within 14 seconds, the next time I go on a search, I'm going to have all these things which want to sell me boots. Where does that fit in? Now, I know it's not subliminal and I know it's not whatever, but how does that fit into your ethical framework? So this would definitely, this is, you know, cookies that can sort of follow you around on the internet and, and is shared across many sites. And this, uh, depending on how it's orchestrated, could be considered unethical as well. If uh, we know from, from previous experiments in judgment and decision making that if there's a sort of persistent claim that's made again and again and again, uh, we need to exercise deliberative capacity to sort of fend that off. And each and every time we do that, that in turn essentially diminishes our cognitive capacity and makes us more likely to comply with that request. So if it can be shown that these sort of repeated attempts across numerous platforms and contexts actively uh, diminish our cognitive capacity, therefore making it more likely to comply outside of our wishes, then uh, I think that would uh, be unethical, a la this deliberative capacity that's being subverted. Right. So um, one, of the, um, one of the topics which I think is kind of a little bit on my mind, which I just want to bring up with you is because, um, you know, 
it seems like that we like underdogs, that we like <laughs> people there. So I, I'll be, I'll issue my disclaimer. Uh, I'm not a big horse racing person, but I do always like to watch the Kentucky Derby. I like a lot about it. Well, this last Kentucky Derby was just for me, who's not a big person, great that that horse that wasn't in the Derby on Thursday, now on Saturday won. Why, why did I get so excited about that horse winning? I didn't know who the horse was. What was going on in my neuro wherever? Well, you're certainly not alone. We do have a you know very, very soft spot for underdogs. Um, this this we can clearly see this in sports, but I think it, it transcends sports, really all of life and all of storytelling. I think underdogs uh, really exemplify the character traits we'd like to see in ourselves and that they succeed against the odds and they're perseverant and they are uh, uh, sort of able to be, have this sort of world beating quality to them. Uh, I think as well, there's a special place in the American psyche for underdogs as well. Uh, Underdogs are essentially the, you know, the example that everyone would give for evidence of the American dream that, uh, you know, if you work hard enough, you can succeed despite the odds. And uh, I think, you know, we're in a place now not to, not to get on a sort of a negative point, we're at a point now in, in the, the state of America, where uh, actual upward economic mobility is actually relatively low. And uh, it it is no longer as possible as it used to be to elevate one's economic status. And so when uh, someone does do that, we're talking about the LeBron Jameses of the world, the Oprahs of the world, uh, they become this shining example, which everyone likes to to point to in order to get hope for ourselves that uh, if they can do it, we can do it. Uh, even if objectively, uh, on aggregate, the, these types of transformations aren't happening as much as as they used to. So let me let me move a little bit in an area that I'm kind of very interested in. You know, my work at Catholic Charities, we're not selling products, but we need to influence people. We need to develop more. Have you done any work in some of the the uh, the ways that nonprofit organizations? market and some of the some of the insights that you've developed there there's a there's been some work there definitely i think one phenomena that comes to mind is uh the the utilization of human empathy which i think is is especially important in nonprofit organizations uh, especially ones seeking donations there's a lot of evidence uh suggesting that in one's um advertising campaigns that uh, those that emphasize really the broad scope of the topic actually tend not to do that well. Instead of having uh, advertisements and, and campaigns which is focused on a single individual actually are, are much more effective in procuring donations. And this has to do with the psychology of empathy, which uh, is exquisitely catered to a single individual. So we can empathize very well with a single individual. We, we uh, will feel very compelled to assist when it's a, a single individual in need. But if we're talking about two individuals or three or four or five or a country that is uh, in plight, uh, that becomes much more difficult to empathize with. And so uh, there's a lot of evidence in support of that. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Paul Slovich at the University of Oregon. He calls this phenomenon psychic numbing. And it's uh, a, a very... Um, sort of robust finding that, that really comes up again and again. 
So uh, one final question. You've been so generous with your your time. And you mentioned a couple of things you're working on, but are there some areas of kind of research or areas that you kind of really want to get into because you think that those are areas which, you know, could, could lead to a lot more insights into the area that you are working on? I think one thing that is especially fascinating to me is this idea of market driving forces. There's a lot in marketing where you're reacting to existing consumer preferences. So consumers are into whatever seasonal thing it is or whatever trend it is. Um, But there's also uh, a a room for brands to actually drive the conversations and not so much be reactive to existing consumer preferences, but actually to shape them ourselves. And this gives, uh, and in tapping into this, this gives brands an incredible amount of control in terms of of obviously generating demand, but also things in terms like changing social norms and uh, really changing how consumers should think about pressing topics such as, for example, climate change or economic inequality. So instead of reacting to existing consumer preferences, which gets, you know, very sort of redundant and and reductionist and iterative because you're just reacting to something that already exists and and galvanizing something that exists already, uh, you can actually shift that demand and shift the conversation. And uh, one uh, category of brands generally do this well, which are luxury brands, actually. So they're not reacting to existing preferences. They are the tastemakers. And some work I'm, I'm working on right now is looking at the ability for luxury brands to change aesthetic preferences and change values uh, through art and through art's influence on culture. So uh, I'm playing in a pretty big sandbox when it comes to this general area, but uh, it's definitely one that I'm very interested in and uh, hope to uh, hope to contribute something to soon. So, so Matt, let me ask you, when I just heard you talk, two things came up for me, and I'm not sure I, I got it right. Um, is that why a particular brand might get a well-known celebrity spokesperson? Because they want to kind of create a market uh, for whatever they're, they're, they're selling. And the other, the other thing, which is other thing, I mean, the big word that everybody's using now is who are the influencers? Is that related to what you were just saying? Definitely. And this actually goes back to what we were chatting about earlier with empathy as well. So brands, big, huge, you know, multinational brands, they try and personify themselves. They try and have, they try and be seen as people. So, you know, Apple is sort of a sleek, smart, minimalist brand. Uh, You know, Nike is the athletic uh, uh, sort of, you know, athletic excellence brand. These are sort of personal qualities And one of the great tools that brands have to personify themselves and personify their offerings is through individuals. So as we spoke about, it's really individuals who have the uh, uh, sort of most, uh, most closely tethered to human empathy and influencers come in with their own communities, their own poll, their own, yeah, for lack of better phrasing, better, better phrasing, their own influence. And that really helps to uh, humanize the the brand to to a much larger extent. Professor Matt Johnson, Professor of Psychology of Marketing at the Holt International Business School. Thank you so much for your insights and thanks for your generosity in being with us today on Just Love. Thanks again. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here, Kevin. Great. 
um, just love, just do it. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Tom, we'll take a break and we'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Four, three, two, one. Welcome back to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. I'm here with Tom Dobbins. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. Uh, we look at what's going on from the perspective of our Catholic values. Um, I am delighted that we're going to be speaking now with Professor Will Kaufman, who is a professor of American Literature and Culture, the University of Central uh, Lancashire in Preston, England. And we're going to be speaking about um, the life and legacy of Woody Guthrie. Uh, and uh, we're doing it because it's kind of interesting because one of the museums in New York the Morgan Library, is going to be uh, closing their exhibit on Woody Guthrie this weekend. And uh, I'm delighted that we can kind of share that. And, you know, if anybody is in New York this weekend, hopefully they can become, um, they might be wanting to stop by the Morgan Library Museum and to learn a little bit more about uh, about Woody Guth- Guthrie. Um, so I, I, Tom, did, um, Tom, did you, how much do you know about Woody Guthrie? Uh, you know, Monsieur, I don't know a lot. I, I know uh, This Land is Your Land. Uh, I know the songs okay. that he sings. But yeah. I know I actually did go see his son, Arlo Guthrie, okay. in concert. And uh, I, I'm a, an affectionado of his Alice's Restaurant. So I know a little more about Arlo than I okay. know about Woody. Well, so then you got to pay attention. No dozing off when I'm talking to Professor. I promise. I promise about about this, Professor Kaufman. Thank you for joining us on Just Love. My pleasure to be here. Hello, everybody. Hi. So, 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 get me from Montclair, New Jersey, to Preston, England. How? How? Tell me about that journey. Well, it was a journey, I suppose, that... Thank you. Uh, boy, I'm so glad when I'm listening to your voice, you still speak that right kind of English. You don't, you don't speak like those people where you are now. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, you know, up here in Yorkshire, like, we kind of talk a little bit funny, but, you know... <laughs> No, I've been over here for uh, most of my adult life. It began as as a uh, a junior year abroad from Montclair State uh, to a small college in in South Wales, and I loved it so much that after I got back to Montclair State and and graduated, I got a Marshall scholarship to bring me back, t- and I went to the University of Wales in a place called Aberystwyth which is a lot shorter to say than <laughs> and I got my doctorate actually in American literature from uh, the University of Wales. And I've, I've really, I've been here uh, ever since. Ah, so it, it's, it, let me just ask you, this is just myself asking, I wonder how it, how does it feel to get a degree in American literature not in the United States. Well, actually, that was a that was a choice I made because truth to tell, I got the scholarship 
to get a degree in Welsh history because I'd already been in Wales. But then yeah. I know I saw that there was an American studies department upstairs and I thought, wow, what an opportunity to study my own culture from this foreign perspective. And then, then you think about how many expatriate American writers were doing the exact same thing. You know, Washington Irving, uh, Mark Twain, Henry James, uh, uh, Fitzgeralds, you know, they uh, Hemingway. There was there is such a a desire, I think, on a lot of Americans to get some distance distance and to and to step back and look uh, from a more a more global perspective. Yeah, when you think yeah. about how many Americans don't even have passports, I think the world would be a lot uh, a, a much different place if more Americans did get passports and travel and and engage with the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, Professor Kaufman, I think you point out something which. Um, you know, sadly, a little is sadly part of our, you know, our our culture. Whether it be, I don't want to necessarily blame the dead, but kind of George Washington telling us to kind of stay out of foreign entanglements, or maybe God creating the United States with two big oceans on either side. You know, we do have a yeah. tendency, and I don't want to speak about some of the what I consider a little bit less gentle forms of American um, isolationism recently. But I think you're right that we do have a tendency because we're so big, we're so rich in natural resources and a lot of stuff. You know, we maybe think we can deal with it all without dealing with the big, broader world. So thank you for pointing that out. Sure. My pleasure. <laughs> so now let's uh, let's let's come up to speed. Tell us. Woody Guthrie. What, tell us about him. Okay, well, uh, he's somebody who really I grew up with in a kind of casual way in the sense that my parents uh, were both musical. Uh, my father was a, a jazz pianist. Uh, this is all just uh, um, amateur. You know, my father was a jazz pianist. My mom was a classical pianist. Um, but they're also politically active and they were sort of on the social periphery of the weavers they knew they knew pete seeger they knew ronnie gilbert of the, of the weavers so uh consequently i kind of grew up in that milieu of people that knew about american folk music and um the records were always lying around the house you know woody guthrie joan baez right. uh pete seeger the weavers of course harry belafonte think things like that uh, uh, pe people like that so woody was always in my uh consciousness more or less um, I grew up as uh, as a bluegrass uh, first as a bluegrass player, and then broad broadening out into American folk music. And my two older brothers are are guitarists as well. And uh, so the mu uh, the knowledge of the music was was part of it. Yeah. But I think you know we're talking about uh, going abroad. Um, I guess I was really began getting interested in Woody when I was already over here. I was an American expatriate in the late eighties, early nineties, when it's kind of, it's a tough gig to be an American expatriate at that time when America really is broadcasting itself is quite a belligerent entity, right. either yeah. you're with us or you're against us, you know, that, that, that kind of thing. I won't name names, right? but it was then that I began to, almost frantically search for an alternative American voice that I could broadcast as one that I would be proud of. 
right? And I'd been playing music all along, and it struck me that Woody Guthrie was somebody who I would like to revisit and find out more about, because I think I like this guy, and I think he's the kind of the voice of America that I would like to see projected on this side of the Atlantic, at least, you know? So that's really how I got into him. Then I began researching uh, Woody more and more. I, I put together some performance pieces based on his his songs telling his story, like these live documentaries that I, um, I call them. And then I began researching him uh, with a view to, to doing serious scholarly work on him. And so that's where the, the three books came from and the archival research and things like that. So tell our listeners, I'm delighted with that. It's a great story. But what are some of the things that your research, you know, revealed that maybe you were a little surprised about or are more interesting, which are not kind of at the 35,000 level feet that he is a, you know, an American folk hero. What did you learn that was either surprising to you or that would be interesting to our listeners? Okay, well, the first thing that I learned was something that I had really admired about him, that he was always willing to revisit his positions and and learn from his mistakes. You know, he started out he as a rather unthinking racist. He grew up in a in a clan loving racist uh, family in, in, in Oklahoma and through a number of missteps on his own uh, part, he gradually had his, I guess, consciousness raised about right. race and and apologized in places where he should have apologized for things that he said unthinkingly and became an ardent, I mean, a complete 180 degree turnaround, yeah. you know, and 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 he showed me that it wasn't only in in. Um, in, in race, but in, in a, a number of aspects where he was, was able to step back and look at himself and say, all right, I can do better in this area. I can do better in that area. That's one thing that, that uh, did surprise me about him. Another so Professor, thing- Professor Kaufman, yeah. let me ask you something which, which is pretty sensitive, but I'm going to ask it because you provoked it in me. Um, would he survive today? Because aren't we, in a, I'm going to say this in a provocative way, but aren't we in a world now where one strike and you're out? It doesn't matter if you said something 40 years ago, if it, somebody discovers it, you no longer. Oh, there was always a day. I think there's always a danger of Woody Guthrie being canceled. <laughs> right, okay. I'm going to be canceled anyway. Right. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, I, th- I think, uh, you know, I've got a book coming out in um, this month, which is a pretty hefty history of songs of struggle from Columbus right up to the Second World War when Woody shows up. And I don't think it's really going to be on too many school curricula in Florida. OK, that way, you yeah. know. Um, so I think I think there is always a danger that Woody would have would have been canceled. He, um, if you want to call it that, because uh, he yeah. sure was woke. If you right. know, I don't even know what that means anymore. But but right. the fact yeah. is that that he, um, I think, yeah, there's there's he he was very contentious, and I think I remember seeing. I think it was on television. I think I saw Tucker Carlson deconstruct this land is your land as one of the most rabid communist, anti-capitalist, contemptible things ever written. So, um, yeah, I think in certain arenas, he's been canceled for a long time anyway. Right. Right. Okay. 
right, good. No, I guess, you know, but again, let me, you're, I hear exactly what you're saying and I think you're on target. I guess what I was referring to was almost the other side of the coin because at one point he was a racist. Yeah. Would that have forever disqualified himself in, from certain other people? I, I don't think so. As long as his uh, sort of self-correction, if you want to call it right. that, is visible, then I right. think it's an admirable thing, you know? Right. Okay. I mean, um, and, and, and it's and it, there's there's no there's no doubt that, you know, his the record shows with his support of of, of people like Paul Robeson. He was there at the Peekskill riots. Right. And, and wrote so many songs about that horrible event against Paul Robeson. And and uh, and, you know, his arguing on behalf of Lead Belly and his singing with Josh White and 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 right. um, and his own writings. You know, it's not yeah. like, oh, some of my best friends. Uh, right. it, it's just really he lived it. He walked yeah. he walked the walk when it when it came to it. You know, so tell, tell us about the Peekskill riots. Okay, well, in 1949, um, an organization, a leftist organization called People's Songs, had um, had uh, arranged for Paul Robeson to be singing at a concert, uh, an open air concert up in Peekskill. And Paul Robeson was already uh, taking a lot of flack for having uh, for his pro Soviet stances and for his declaration that, you know, um, no, no. African-American would in their right mind would willingly go to war against the Soviet Union. He'd lived in the Soviet Union. He'd, he was much treat, treated much better there than in many places in the United States. And yeah. and uh, for for expressing that opinion, that heresy, when he got to Peekskill, he was met with a burning cross on the hill above Peekskill, which kind of proved his point, didn't it? You know, right. <laughs> and yes, so yes. but but he never got to sing that first concert because uh, the, the the local townspeople had been fired up by the Klan and by uh, the John Birch Society and a lot of other right wing organizations um, instructing the and the, 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 the local newspaper instructing the people to come on out in mass and express their distaste for Paul Robeson. So that turned into the first of the Peekskill riots. Robeson himself said, and, and Woody Guthrie was there along with Pete Seeger and, and a bunch of other people who you may know of. And um, uh, Robeson said, I don't get scared when fascism rears its head against me the way it has here at Peekskill. And he vowed he would come back two weeks later and sing that damn concert. And that's what he did. And then there were riots again. Um, many of which uh, uh, the, the the recordings of which are captured in in um, uh, a record, an extended song called "The Peekskill Story," by uh, Pete Seeger, Ronnie Gilbert, Fred Hellman, Lee Hayes, Howard Fast. And really, this was the coming together of the Weavers. To, oh. uh, to, to to some extent um, that was there, you know, that was just about their premiere. <laughs> that that you know, the Peekskill riots and and. People were beaten up. Um, I mean, it was it was a violent, the ugly face of American fascism showed itself in Peekskill in 1949. And, and Woody wrote a number of songs based on his firsthand experience of of what he saw there. Boy, we're, we're speaking with uh, Professor Kaufman, who is a uh, professor of American literature and cult uh, culture at the University of Central Lancashire in Preston, England. Uh, that was that was great. Is there um, one other 
kind of thing that you learned, maybe a little bit of a surprise about Woody in your research? Well, um, I learned that the uh, the pose of the oaky, the unlettered oaky, uh, you know, Dust Bowl balladeer was precisely that. It was a facade. He was incredibly well read. He was urban. He was sophisticated. He was he traveled. He, he knew North Africa. He knew Italy. He knew the British Isles <laughs> because of his merchant seaman um, experience. And um and he was extremely curious. He was interested in science and technology, and he wrote a lot about it. My second book is called Woody Guthrie's Modern World Blues, and it's an extended look at Woody as, as a modernist, you know? So he's, uh, that's, that's a lot different than what you would think of when you think of, you know, uh, the Dust Bowl balladeer. Um, <laughs> And then I guess there's one other thing that everyone is always interested in, which is uh, I discovered by rooting through his uh, his notebooks and letters in the Woody Guthrie archives that he had a bone to pick with his Brooklyn landlord in uh, the early 1950s because this landlord had imposed a color line, a de facto cover uh, color line in what was supposedly public housing in Brooklyn, a place called Beach Haven, public housing, particularly reserved for veterans like Woody and his and his family. And um, but he found out that really isn't interesting. There's only white people here. And he did a little bit of digging around and came to the conclusion that his landlord was actively um, imposing the color line that many federal housing authority uh, uh operations did in fact uh impose but this landlord got under woody's skid and his name was fred trump uh, <laughs> so, uh, did, did 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 fred trump have any kids um yeah yeah he had a couple one one of whom later um i can't i can't remember his name for the life of me uh but i know that he ran for president in twenty. 16, I think it was. And he ran with the declaration at one point. He said, my legacy is my father's legacy. And I began to think about, well, what is your father's legacy? There's a legacy of of some pretty uh, dirty dealing when it came to building um, federal housing projects and skimming money off the top and all that. But also your father's racism is part of the legacy. And um, that is something that I think uh, there you had Woody Guthrie from beyond the grave, uh, 60 years uh, beyond the grave, you know, commenting on the legacy of Fred Trump in the uh, in the in the era of Donald Trump. So, Professor Will Kaufman, thank you so much. Uh, I'm so glad. And, uh, you know, our listeners can uh, if they want to know more, you have three books that are out on that. And I'm certain they are still available, aren't they? Uh, yeah, um, wherever good books are sold. Uh, they, haven't been, ever, they haven't quite been canceled in, in all 50 states yet. So I imagine people will find them somewhere. Professor Will Kaufman, Professor of American Literature and Culture, University of Central uh, Lancashire, Preston, England. Thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. And thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Tom, we'll take a break. Just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. 
and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Four, three, two, one. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Um, This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. We just had two very interesting conversations. Tom, the one on Woody Guthrie, you commented that you know the work of his son, Arlo, better. Mm -hmm. Um, And Alice's Restaurant, which my family listens to on every Thanksgiving. (laughs) That's a very appropriate thing, Muncie. Yep. At (laughs) six o'clock, we put on... Alice's restaurant, usually we're kind of in the middle of eating and it's kind of there in the background. Um, and it is just um, a great, great story. Um, uh, can you tell it very briefly for our listeners? Sure, Monsieur. I, I think just very, very quickly, it's the story of uh, Arlo Guthrie and he's uh, and, and, and it's about roughly this restaurant, right? But really what they go through is how he gets arrested. And then it's about littering. And the ticket that he gets arrested for littering on is at the bottom of this garbage pile. But in the long, long roundabout way, um, he ties it into Alice and her restaurant in, 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 in very interesting ways. But I think that listeners should listen to it because it really is very, very clever the way he does it. Great. So uh, anyway, so thank you all for being with us on Just Love, Just Do It, Just Love God, Just Love Your Neighbor, Just Love Yourself, and our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Join us when we come back again uh, next week um, on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Four, three, two, one. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what is going on in the world viewed through the prism of our Catholic teaching, our Catholic values, our Catholic wisdom. And, you know, one of the more important documents of the Second Vatican Council basically began with saying something like this. I'll paraphrase it. I won't get it exactly right. But basically said the hopes, the joys, the griefs, the sorrows of humankind are the griefs, the the hopes, the sorrows of the followers of Jesus. And so the point that they were making is that with Jesus taking on our humanity, saving us in our humanity, that basically whatever is going on in the human race is of concern to the believers in Jesus, that we're not angels. And our sisters and brothers in wherever they are in the world, uh, whether they be right next door to us within our own families, our own schools, our own jobs, all of that is within kind of the purview, the vision, the prism of those who are the followers of Jesus. And so over our 2,000-year history, we have developed a perspective in which we um, say that there are certain values that we think enhance humankind. And we talk about those in a variety of different ways. And so what we do at Just Love is we look at various topics, which I suspect that many of the listeners to the Catholic Channel would say, well, wait a minute, that's not a Catholic topic. That's not a religious 
topic. But the perspective that we take is that any topic is a topic that is affecting somebody in the world or some group of people in the world. And what we try to do is to say, okay, yes, that's not a topic that's inside a church building. That's not a religious topic, but that the followers of Jesus, that the disciples of Christ bring the wisdom of that community of faith for 2000 years and say, okay, it's going on in the world. How do we understand it? How do we think about it? And what should our actions be if it's a good thing to further it, to promote it, to spread it further? And if it's a bad thing, what do we have to do to diminish it, to stop it, to reduce the hurt that is going on to the dignity of the human person? So that's why we look at things from sports, psychology. We look at things from the perspective of music a variety of things in order to um, kind of bring that wisdom to bear on those situations. Well, this Memorial Day weekend, what we're going to look at is a few things related to war. Memorial Day weekend in the United States is the weekend in which we honor those in the armed forces who have died in various wars. And one of the things we're going to look at this week is, well, people do tragically not only die in wars, but they also get wounded in wars and they need medical treatment afterwards. And there is a whole kind of veterans um, healthcare system. There is policy for veterans. And, you know, in recent years, it's come under some criticism because some of the deficiencies that were pointed out in that system. So I'm delighted that we're going to be able to speak a little bit on this Memorial Day weekend with somebody who's an expert in the area of, you know, veterans policy, looking at health care, and a variety of other things. So I'm happy to welcome to uh, Just Love, Carrie Farmer, who is a senior policy research uh, and director at the Rand Corporation's Epstein Family Veterans Policy. Um, Dr. Farmer, thank you for being with us on Just Love. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So give our listeners a little bit sense of your own um, journey and how did you wind up in the current position? What got you interested in this? How'd you get to where you are now? A great question. Um, I myself am not a veteran, um, but my father is a veteran. Um, He served in the Army National Guard. Um, And so I grew up hearing his stories of his military service. Um, And uh, shortly, uh, as as part of my research training, um, uh, some of my research training was at um, a VA hospital in uh, Brockton, Massachusetts, um, where I was exposed to research on Um, veterans with serious mental illness, which is uh, something that I focused on at the time. Um, And then when I came to the Rand Corporation, um, uh, many of my colleagues had been working on uh, really interesting projects related to how to provide high quality care to veterans, um, both through uh, VA healthcare and outside of VA, as well as care for service members and their families through the military health system. Um, I grew very interested in that work and have been doing it for the last 13 years. You know, I think probably a lot of our listeners probably know what the RAND Institute is, 
but some may not. So give just a little thumbnail for our listeners about what is, uh, what is RAND? That's a great question also. Um, so RAND is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization. So we do, um, you can think of it sort of like a think tank, um, but all of, our, all of our research is publicly available um, and is, is open for anybody to read. So we, have, uh, we do research on all um, aspects related to national security as well as to uh, domestic policies as well. Okay, so thank you. Thank you for that. So um, this is, you know, uh, Memorial Day weekend is coming up. And so, you know, the issue of veterans and veterans health care, the veterans hospitals, they've been in the news for the past decade or so. Um, can you just give again, give our listeners just a little bit of background, some are more familiar than others. What has been some of the kind of the controversy or the the public um, items that have been in the news? Why did they make the news? So that people have a sense of the landscape of what we're talking about. Sure. Well, it may be helpful to start with thinking about where do veterans get health care and okay. what population right. does, uh, does the Department of Veterans Affairs serve? Um, it's, a, it's generally a common misconception that all veterans get their care from VA. Um, uh, as it turns out, that's not the case, that it's really only about, um, about half of veterans are enrolled at, uh, uh, through VA for their health care. Um, and so there's 18 million veterans currently alive in the United States now. And in any given year, 6 million veterans get some care from VA. Um, so 9 million are eligible to get care from VA or enrolled in VA and about 6 million a year get their care from VA. Let me ask you a little bit of a wonky research question. Does, yeah. uh, does the kind of the penetration of, of where the percentage of veterans that use the VA system, does it vary by regions in the country? I'm not sure. It's, okay. it, it's um, veterans are eligible for VA care based on their length of military service. Right. So having served at least two years or more in active duty status, right. um, uh, having a military service connected healthcare condition. So some type right. of illness or injury that um, was incurred because of their military service. Right. Um, and then, then um, income as well. So there are income um, standards too. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I interrupted. Keep going. No, that's great. It's a um, VA is a really complicated healthcare organization because it's responsible for po- providing healthcare across the entire United States. Right. Um, and uh, and veterans live um, not uniformly across the United States. So I think right. if you think geographically, um, you know, I don't know the exact percentages, but for sure in areas where there's a higher concentration of veterans. Right. Um, it's more likely that there will be more users of VA facilities in those locations. You know, Dr. Farmer, it's interesting because I think I just learned something that I didn't know. Um, so there is an income quali- qualification. So let me phrase it in a, in a very kind of a layman's way. So a rich veteran can't get health care from the veterans hospital system? Not if they have no service-connected health condition okay. or a very uh, so it's it's really this relationship between um, 
between all of these factors. So if, well, me, if there's so again, a veteran me, has... For the sake of our listeners and me, yep. let me phrase it my way and then you correct me when I get okay. it wrong. So in other words, if you're a veteran who got wounded in, in, the, in the military, even if you're rich, you can get help at the veterans. That's right. But if you're in the military and you didn't get wounded and you're rich, you can't. That's right. Okay. I got it. I got it. Okay. But if you were in the military and you didn't get wounded and you are not rich, you may be able to get care for VA. Right. So. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So keep going. Tell us about the system then. You said it's complex. So let our listeners understand kind of how it works for those who are eligible. Sure. So it's, uh, um, I'll try not, I won't use super policy wonky um, <laughs> terms, but you know, for, for those who are, for those who are really excited by health policy, VA operates as like a staff model HMO. And so by that, I mean, all VA owns and operates all of its facilities and hire all VA uh, healthcare providers um, work on salary for VA. So they are the, the way that they are paid is not an insurance system. It's a, uh, it's a healthcare provider network. Right. Um, so providers aren't reimbursed by the number of patients that they see or the number of procedures that they perform. They have a, they have a, they are paid by um, just straight by salary. And that's so really, let me, different let me again, let me just ask you because, and this is more for me. Um, I mean, I, I, I live in the New York metropolitan area. Um, you know, I know there's a big VA hospital in the Bronx. I think there's a VA hospital in Manhattan on 23rd Street. There probably are others. Um, is, the VA, is the VA health system provided actually at those hospitals or are there VA doctors, are there VA doctors offices in in communities in addition to being on the campuses of hospitals? Yes, but not as like a standalone provider office. So VA operates these big VA medical centers, so VA hospitals, and then also outpatient clinics as well. Okay. Um, And and those can be sprinkled somewhere in the uh, broad geographic area of where VA hospital is. Okay, good. Well, I'm learning a lot. So please keep going. I'm going to learn a lot by the end of our- This is one of my favorite topics. So I'm happy to to talk about it. Um, So some of the the challenges that VA faces is that VA VA takes all veterans who are eligible. So if there's a sudden increase in demand for VA healthcare. So for example, um, you know, with returning veterans from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there were more veterans um, separating from the military and needing medical care. And so um, VA has, uh, you know, some of the issues that came up about um, 10 years ago or so were um, more demand for healthcare than there was supply. So there were veterans were facing longer wait times for getting care. Um, And that turned into that turned into a scandal uh, because there were um, uh, concerns about veterans not getting the care that they needed and VA not being able to meet that demand. Um, uh, Secretary Dr. Fama, if my memory serves is right, that was one of the concerns, but wasn't, wasn't a major concern that 
that the VA officials lied about it? There was concern that the way that they were calculating the wait lists or the, yeah. the way that the uh, wait lists were being recorded or their transparency about the wait lists um, was not totally transparent. And so, um, you know, I don't think in the end that there we were- not, We non-researchers non yeah. say they lied. I mean, I, I understand the nuances <laughs> of what you're, you're saying, but I get it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but anyway. In the end, with the, the investigations at the end of the day, to my knowledge, did not find that there were veterans that died because they were on a wait list. Um, right. But there was a lot of concern about that at the time. So then there was then there was this big push to increase availability of healthcare for veterans, and the solution that was brought forward was more care that was provided in the private sector that was paid for by VA. Did that ever happen? It sure did. So there was a, uh, in 2014, Congress passed a bill, the Veterans Access, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, but right. it's uh, Veterans Access and Accountability and Choice Act, something like that. Um, and uh, it's commonly known as the Choice Act. And so that first uh, established a mechanism. VA has always provided care in the private sector through um, individual agreements with providers, and those were all mostly managed at the local level. So this was the first time at the national level there was a um, a, a requirement, a legislative requirement, that VA um, increase the way and consolidate the way that it was providing care and access to care in the community in the private sector. Um, and then, and that was intended as a temporary program. And then in um, 2019, the Mission Act was passed and that made this program permanent. Um, and so it's one of VA's challenges now is, is managing an integrated healthcare system where uh, most care is being provided in VA facilities by VA providers, but some care is being provided in the community. And uh, there, there's going to be, there is, and there will continue to be challenges in trying to coordinate that care. Um, and, and ensure that veterans are getting uh, the high quality care that they deserve. So you mentioned we're, we're speaking with uh, Carrie Farmer, who is a senior policy researcher and director at the RAND Corporation. We're speaking you know, on this um, as Memorial Day weekend is coming up, the care that our veterans are getting health care after they leave the, the, the military. So um, let me, let me kind of ask you a little bit of a, of a loaded question, okay? Um, and I'll give me a moment to set it up. Um, I'm going to wind up asking, how good is the care at veterans hospitals? I mean, you know, to be a little negative, you know, one of those expressions which is used, whether it's right or wrong, is, oh, that work is good enough for government. And the and kind of the understanding of that phrase is, which means it's inferior to what you would get, you know, someplace else. And I mean, one of the things we say at Catholic Charities to our staff is we want to provide care. We want to provide help, not health care, but whatever type of services we're doing at Catholic Charities. We want to provide it in a way that if our family members needed the service, we would refer them to them. We would provide the care in the way that we wanted. So let me put you a little bit on the spot is, you know, would you prefer 
your family to be cared for at a veterans hospital or at the Mayo Clinic? Well, for my, well, I guess I know that's it's not, an unfair I don't know question. That's the right comparison. So the, the comparison is not, not everybody goes to Mayo Clinic. Uh, you know, that that is a, um, only it's a small population of people that get to go to Mayo Clinic. Everybody else is getting care from in their own communities, right. which is really variable. And some of it is great. And some of it is not great. Um, on the whole, when we study this question, right. VA care is as good or better than the private sector on all types of measures, including um, veteran satisfaction with their care and their, their types of care experiences that they have, um, which is which tends to be surprising. Uh, to many people that 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 is the case. Um, we hear a lot about bad things that happen um, at VA hospitals, but I can assure you those bad things also happen at private sector hospitals. It just doesn't become front page news. Um, so it's, uh, I would be, you know, for myself, I would be happy to get care from a VA hospital if I were, if I were eligible to do so. And many of my um, friends and colleagues who are veterans um, you know, this is anecdotal. They they really appreciate the care that they get yeah. from VA. So what do you see, or or let me ask you kind of a little bit of a personal, personal professional question. Um, what are you <laughs> know, uh, interested in researching further about <laughs> veterans? Oh, I think we can make it work. Yeah, I think we can make it work. What are, what are you interested in, um, in, um, uh, in researching further to learn more about uh, the veteran system? Well, one thing that I'm personally really interested in is how this, um, how the community care aspect uh, of VA provided healthcare is working. Um, how, how, what, what can we find out about the quality of care that veterans are getting outside VA? Um, uh, what is, you know, what is VA doing to ensure that the care that they're getting is timely and is high quality? Um, I think that's, that's one of the biggest challenges is that VA has a lot of ability to understand the care that it's providing through its own providers and facilities, um, but less ability to have, uh, have a lot of information about what's happening out in the community. I know you mentioned, you said that after the Choice Act, that a certain amount was provided in the community, and and even before that, it was. Yeah. Um, a sense is it like ten percent, twenty percent? How much is is in the community? It differs based on the type of care. But for example, um, one of the statistics I've heard recently is that um, for mental health care, at the moment, forty seven percent of mental health care consults are happening in the community. Okay. And what about primary care? I believe most primary care is happening at VA uh, because that is VA's role is intended to be as the, um, you know, as the main coordinator of care where the bulk of care is happening at VA and then for certain episodes of care. So for example, if um, somebody needed a surgery or a, a course of treatment somewhere that that that's the type of care that might happen outside VA. Early on, you kind of mentioned a little bit of the financial um, part of the VA where um, where doctors are paid and they're on staff and everybody is on on staff. Um, is is the revenue for um, for the hospital 
does that come through insurance, federal appropriations, or a combination of both? How is the, how is it actually funded? It is part of the federal budget. So VA prepares its budget request to Congress um, using, you know, they have a, they have a model to predict what they think the demand will be in the coming years and what the and what the needs will be and present their budget request um, to Congress and it gets uh, included as part of the as part of the federal budget process. So um, there, is there no insurance that is involved? That's right. So, I mean, as a taxpayer, I don't think I like that because if if a veteran is eligible and um, is using the services, but is working for a company also that has insurance, why shouldn't me as a taxpayer uh, take advantage of that insurance that the person has as an employee of that company? VA does. So there are some veterans who have multiple forms of insurance. So a veteran could have their employer insurance. They could also have TRICARE at the same time and get care from VA. Um, So VA does make an attempt to to bill other insurance, um, but it's not a requirement. So it requires a veteran telling VA that they have this other type of insurance. So it's... um, it, it, there is some effort to recoup some of that cost w- from other insurers where possible. Okay, I get it. They're not going to make me head of VA, but I would make it not optional. <laughs> I'd make them. Uh, I'd make them do it. It just seems to me it's a no-brainer to be able to kind of increase because I think there's always an issue: is there enough resources to provide the care that is that is needed, and that's. Uh, uh, there. You did mention something. So let's pursue this a little bit. I think, you know, in recent years, not very recent, but the whole notion of, of mental health, of post-traumatic stress syndrome, how is the VA and VA system trying to deal with that, which has become an increasing issue of concern and awareness among a, a great number of people. Yeah, VA is really a leader in this space. Um, VA not only provides care, but also conducts research and uh, does a lot of training of medical professionals in the country. Um, and so they're really a leader in terms of um, studying and coming up with uh, new treatments and really the best treatments um, for these conditions that are much that are more prevalent among veterans than, um, than non-veterans. Um, and so VA, VA uses evidence-based forms of treatment. And so those are types of treatment that have been r- rigorously studied um, where there's, a, where there's a, a body of research to demonstrate that it is effective at improving symptoms. Um, and, uh, and that does not happen as often out in the private sector where mental health care mental health care is not, is not always that rigorous. Do you, having kind of lived with working with this in in a variety of ways, um, do you have any sense about, in contrary to other um, specialties, why so much of the mental health care is community-based and not in the hospitals? Do you have a sense of why that's the case? 
I think it just may be um, convenience, you know, relative to where veterans live. It may be, it may be more convenient to get care. They may live far further from a, a VA facility um, where it's, it, you know, it, that's my, that, that would be my guess that it's just, it, it may be more convenient um, to them, but we really don't know anything about how good that care is relative to the care that they could be getting from VA. Yeah. So given the, as you mentioned, about 10 years ago when there was a lot of the um, controversy about care not being given, et cetera, I'm, I'm really, really pleased to hear that the research shows that even though there were problems that, um, that nobody died as a result of that, that's kind of very, very heartening to, to hear. But given the issue was raised up, um, have there been certain changes that you could share with our listeners that have kind of improved the system over the past 10 years? Um, yeah, there has, I mean, part of it has been um, certainly increasing access to this private sector care. So that has been right. um, provided a little bit of relief where some of the, some of those appointments could be provided in the community instead um, part of it is that the demand, it was sort of at the peak of veterans need for this type of healthcare, and that has started to decrease somewhat. So that has also, right. um, started to decline and, and, um, and it hasn't been as, as much of an urgency and VA has changed, um, the way that it communicates about wait times as well, so that right. it's more transparent, um, that on every, uh, the, the website for each VA facility can you know, a veteran could find out how long, when, you know, how long it would be for the next available appointment. Right. Okay. Um, Dr. Farmer, thank you so much for taking the time to be, uh, to be with us on Just Love. Is there one kind of final thing that you think we didn't cover that would help our listeners to understand better the care that is given at veteran at, at through the veteran system. Is there something we didn't cover that you'd like to make sure our listeners know? I think it's, it's just that the VA uh, VA has really evolved to specialize in the treatment of veterans. And so really, uh, really understanding the unique healthcare needs of veterans. So veterans who have um, complex traumatic injuries, um, including brain injuries, um, developing new mobility devices for veterans who are paralyzed or have other types of severe injuries. And as, as we, as we discussed mental health care. So VA provides a really critical role in caring for veterans who have these, um, unique and, uh, in many cases, very serious injuries from their military service. Dr. Farmer, the Rand Institute, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. And Really, thanks for the research you do that um, provides good understanding information to make the system even better. So thank you very much for your work. And thanks for being with us on Just Love. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Um, Tom, I think uh, we will take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And if all 6 billion people of us in the world did that, our world certainly would be more just and it would be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Four, three, two, one. 
Welcome back to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world. And we are at approaching Memorial Day weekend. And so we thought we'd kind of talk this week about um, things related to the military. We spoke about healthcare for veterans. And in just a moment or two, we're going to speak about uh, military photography and uh, also how do other countries celebrate uh, Veterans Day? Um, but I do think it's it's important for us to kind of point out a little bit, and I'll talk a little bit more about this at the end. You know, whenever we kind of talk about Memorial Day and war, we know that our first um, intention and our first perspective is how do we prevent war? And our own Catholic teaching, which does have a just war theory, that there are times when war is justified. But it is one of the clear principles of that, it should be as last resort, when everything else is tried, and to protect kind of basic human rights, you cannot do anything but, uh, but for a country to defend itself. So there is uh, so on this weekend, we do think about that. Um, you know, obviously, we think about what's going on in Ukraine and that <clears throat> seemingly, I, I don't know anybody who is can claim the invasion of, with a straight face, that the invasion of Russia uh, of the Ukraine is justified. And so, um, so we do think about a war and peace and how we might bring, how an end to that conflict might be brought about. But let's go now to our next guest. Our next guest is Blake Stillwell, who is a former U.S. Air Force combat photographer. And um, to talk about this Memorial Day weekend and to talk about a variety of different, uh, different things. Uh, Blake, thank you for joining us on Just Love. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So what's an Air Force combat photographer do? Uh, well, mostly I did a lot of uh, video production, uh, but uh, they have uh, photographers and graphic designers and, uh, you know, combat correspondents. Uh, our main mission is to document the operation um, for a number of reasons, historical reasons being one of the most important, but also... If something goes wrong, um, you know, if uh, a crime is committed, there's visual evidence. Uh, you know, it's used for lessons learned, for the historical record, and because the American people deserve to see what their troops are doing overseas. I mean, they're footing the bill, after all. So um, you do it. Um, you're actually up there in the plane. Oh, uh, we're so every branch of the military. I'm not sure about the Space Force. That's a little after my time. But every branch of the military has its document documentation forces. Um, combat camera when I was in the Air Force uh, was the Air Forces, but it was really a purple uh, effort. But every every branch worked together. Uh, you know, we were in Iraq, we were in Afghanistan, we were in uh, Lord knows where else. When I was in, it was the height of the global war on terror. So. It wasn't just the Air Force that was pressed to the limits. Uh, we all were. So we, we really worked together. One of my best friends is an Army combat photographer. We met uh, during my service. 
but uh, yeah, so anywhere the U.S. military goes, the potential for a combat cameraman to be there is pretty high. <laughs> How'd you get into that? Uh, uh, very lucky. I was. Um, I joined the military the day after 9-11, and I, I didn't really put a lot of thought or effort into uh, this major life decision that I'd chosen. Uh, so I just went to the recruiter. The, I, I got the Air Force because the recruiter, the Air Force recruiter was the only one there that day. <laughs> and uh, I said, give me a job. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, but uh, I'll, I'll do whatever. He's like, oh, well, we have this great thing. It's called Open General, uh, which I think is called Open Contract today. But it's basically the government chooses your job for you, which, um, you know, I got pretty lucky. <laughs> so they, I, they, they kind of chose or assigned you to be a photographer? Uh, yeah, they did. So after basic training, I got my orders. Uh, I didn't really know what my job was, but I got these. Everybody else in my Air Force unit was going to places like Goodfellow, Keesler, you know, your standard Air Force training bases. I got Fort George G. Meade, Maryland, and uh, with the funny job of visual information production and documentation. So uh, really had no idea what that is, but uh, you know, visual information, I, I thought like, Oh, that might be, that might be creative. So <laughs> we'll see. So tell our listeners, tell us um, a few of let's begin with one. What was one of the more kind of interesting or unique situations you found yourself in as a combat photographer? Oh, well, um, well, this is a non-combat thing. It was we used to document uh, U.S. military exercises as well, um, okay. and there was a, an exercise involving, um, you know, uh, the the movement of some, uh, you know, uh, dangerous material in Europe, and uh, it pitted regular Air Force forces against some of the best uh, operators that the U.S. military had, and. <laughs> This was a uh, an exercise that took place in, in Germany. And the uh, operators, as the opposing forces, um, decided that they would drive onto the base and just go right for their objective, which meant driving through the perimeter fence. <laughs> <laughs> they basically invaded a, a friendly allied base, dri- driving through the perimeter fence to uh, to go and just beat the regular security forces uh surprised everybody uh myself included this was my first uh overseas assignment and it was also uh the first time i had ever documented anything for the military so to know that the you know army special forces could just drive through a secure fence on because that's who they that's who they were that was their job uh, it really surprised me and it made me question everything I thought I, I'd known about the military or serving <laughs> in the military. I didn't know that there were people who that could was, just do whatever they wanted. <laughs> and that was your first, that was kind of your first, uh, your first yeah. gig? That was my uh, intro to uh, documenting military exercises. I had, I was actually on the, uh, I was documenting the, uh, the Air Force, the Blue Forces, the Friendlies. Um, uh-huh. They just got creamed. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, that's uh, good. Tell us another one. Tell us another good story. Oh, um, I don't know that I have a lot of great stories. Um, I have a lot of interesting ones. Well, tell us the interesting ones. Jeez, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a little... Uh, this right. all happened so long ago. Uh, I got out in 2007. 
Okay. Uh, I, I will tell you that uh, one time we we started a small wildfire uh, with muzzle flashes during an exercise. And uh, it was the first time ever, and this was towards the end of my career, uh, my military career. It was the first time ever that we'd ever had to just, every, I'd ever seen anyone in the military just drop everything, drop all the rifles and just switch modes to firefighting. And I get, that was of course out in California, uh, but they, everybody just, you know, in the heartbeat switched their uh, thinking from I'm playing the game to uh, I, now I have to put out a fire before it kills all of us. Yep. It's uh, so what is military.com? Uh, military.com is a, a news and information source uh, geared toward the military. Um, and it's all, it's all about the military, uh, military veteran community. So we do a lot of veteran jobs uh, stuff. That's my personal uh, section of the website. Uh, but we have a lot of great reporters who are down in the Pentagon at the White House, all over DC. We have, uh, we cover things that, you know, the nitty gritty that veterans care about in their lives. It, veteran discounts, pay, benefits, um, you know, every time the VA has an upcoming change to its schedule of benefits, we're there. Uh, every time the VA recognizes a new, uh, you know, condition as pres- presumably presumed to be uh, of service, especially important for Vietnam veterans, um, you know, we're on top of that sort of thing. It's a massive website with a lot of information. But, uh, you know, we get people who just do the the nitty gritty every day of going through government documents, interviewing, uh, you know, uh, uh, officials. Me, myself, uh, as a veteran jobs editor, I'm constantly looking for programs for veterans who that will provide free training or education, certification, job placement, uh, areas that are just looking for vets. And, uh, you know, I try to get them jobs without uh, having to dip into their GI Bill benefits, you know, maybe they could pass it on to their children, which is very important. And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of something for everybody. For, for my section, I like to think that if you are getting out of the military, you've been out for a little while, you can come to the veteran job section of military.com and you will be able to find some kind of free training, education, and even a job if you're looking for it. I, I even uh, interview veteran-owned businesses all the time to just kind of give veterans who are looking for uh, a future, you know, a way to think outside the box. Like, oh, I'm in, I like better, I like barbecue too. Maybe, maybe starting a barbecue rub or uh, a sauce company is my thing. Oh, I, you know, I could be an Amazon delivery driver, but I, now I'm going to start my own delivery company. I'm not just going to drive. I'm going to start my own company. And, you know, you can come to military.com and find that, find a way to do that. So, so Blake, um, today, what's, What's the job market for veterans? Good, bad, neutral, medium? So the the whole job market on the whole is pretty good. Uh, you know, there's a labor shortage in America. And if you're willing to do the work, uh, there's a job out there for you somewhere. And for skilled trades especially, you know, uh, the older generation of people who knew how to do things with their hands, you know, machinists, electricians, roofers, things like that. Uh, they're retiring. And there's a lack of people in that field because guys my age – we were taught growing up that you got to go to college to be respectable and that, uh, you know, skilled trades were a blue collar job that people kind of look down on. But, um, you know, that's not the case. Um, being able to do things with your hands is primary is really important. I just bought a house last year. Uh, 
And I'm telling you, I wish I could do things that an electrician <laughs> could do. I wish I was a carpenter, you know, uh, and you can make good money doing this now. Like a lot of these skilled trades are starting at $70,000 a year or more. Yeah. And, and there are things that, uh, as far as electricians, the electricians union of the United States will train you for free and give you a job, place you in a job, wow. a union job. Yeah. So like, that's the kind of demand that we're looking at. Uh, so job markets in general are pretty good, but for veterans, uh, veterans face the problem of underemployment where they take a job that doesn't adequately challenge their skills, uh, their abilities, and may not pay them enough, uh, you know, to adequately live the lifestyle they're used to. And that can be very detrimental to the veteran mindset. So Blake was speaking with Blake, uh, Stillwell, who is a combat uh, photographer who is now with military.com on this Memorial Day weekend. Um, a couple of years ago, you wrote an article on how 12 other countries celebrate their version of Veterans Day. Um, mm-hmm. What got you interested in kind of researching that and writing that? Well, I mean, I've always been kind of an internationalist. I, uh, I find the way that the uh, other countries celebrate, you know, their own holidays, uh, their own cultures, equally as fascinating as our own. Uh, and, you know, having served in the military, uh, the way that Memorial Day came about uh, was so uh, interesting to me because, you know, it used to be called Decoration Day. And uh, it started with people in the United States on both sides who fought in the Civil War, taking care of the gravestones of fallen soldiers uh, in their areas. And so it wasn't like a very big national holiday, but it became that because we made it that. And eventually they just codified what we already were doing in our communities uh, and, you know, giving us a day off, which is great. <laughs> but, um, you know, that kind of evolution is, is was unique to the United States. So I was, um, I, you know, I, I write a lot about military culture. Um, I've been doing it since... Um, you know, 2015. So, you know, it takes a lot of exploration. So I used, you know, my own interest to try to like find, find that out and relate it to other people. And uh, what I found was, you know, there's either some version of Memorial Day or, uh, you know, Veterans Day, Armistice Day uh, all over the world, which, you know, uh, is, it's pretty endearing. It's pretty heartening. Any one of those countries that you kind of uh, thought had something that you that struck you? Well, um, you know, I was just going back over it uh, because I had written it a, a while ago. Uh, what really strikes me is that, uh, you know, so many of the countries involved in World War I um, have some sort of armistice day. Um, and it, it wasn't just... Uh, you know, dominated by the British Empire, because a lot of these countries, uh, you know, were former Commonwealth countries, but they've really, like I said, they've really taken it to, on their own to, to, to what it means for them. So, like, I, I love that Nigeria, who used to be in the British Commonwealth, uh, celebrates uh, some version of Memorial Day, but, uh, you know, after uh, 1970, after to commemorate the end of their own civil war, they moved it to uh, uh, January 15th instead of November 11th. So they've taken this 
this idea and they've adapted it to their own uh, their own culture. I also love um, the Israeli. Uh, I I hope I don't uh, I don't speak uh, Hebrew. So Yam Hazakaran, <laughs> uh, the day of the memory. Uh, you know they they extended not just to veterans and to military personnel, but to people who died in terrorist attacks and politically motivated violence. You know because. Uh, they have such a long history uh, with that. So they recognize that there's more to uh, memorialize than just the people who signed on to uh, fight and defend. And I think that's uh, really thoughtful. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that I, I looked at the list of, of countries that celebrated and some of them uh, like tend to be you know, more, I would say more neutral in, in, in a lot of situations. Uh, like I see Denmark has mm-hmm. a day, the Netherlands, Sweden, those are not countries that you usually think of major military uh, powers. Um, but even they celebrate this. I, yeah, you know, I think uh, it's, it's in the case of Sweden, Sweden's, uh, if you go back in Swedish history, Sweden gets more and more violent as you get like their their military history is uh, pretty storied. As as a matter of fact, I just wrote an article for military.com about why we should welcome Sweden into NATO uh, because they have a lot of experience fighting Russians. Right. Uh, historically. Uh, but you know, I I think that uh, any society who, you know, recognizes that uh, freedom isn't free is going to you know, want to honor the people who, you know, put their life, lives at risk for, for their country. And in the case of um, the Netherlands, um, you know, Dutch people are so incredibly, uh, they're known for tolerance, you know, but, uh, you know, if you get on the wrong side of the Dutch, again, historically, uh, you learn that, you know, they, they can bring something to a fight. So I think, don't, uh, don't even, don't even talk about Dutch uncles. <laughs> right yeah and they're yeah. not they're not so kind and gentle <laughs> yeah they're you know there's a reason we have those words and phrases you know right. so yeah. uh yeah i agree yeah so anyway so blake stillwell i am so glad that you took the opportunity to be with us on just love and she had a little bit of your experience uh as a photographer in the military and shared with us what's going on in some other countries with regard to, uh, with regard to Memorial Day. Uh, any final thing that you would like to uh, leave with our listeners before I let you go? I would say just don't forget to honor the uh, moment of silence at 3 p.m. in your local area. Uh, you know, it's, I think it's great that people get to the day off to have a barbecue. And as a veteran, I salute you. I hope your burgers are tasty, but do, do take that one minute to uh, recognize why you have the day off. Okay. Blake Stillwell, uh, former combat photographer in the military. Now he is editor at veteran jobs at military.com. Thank you so much for being with us on just love. Thanks for having me. Great. Tom, uh, I think uh, we'll take a break and we'll be back in just a moment. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. 
And if we all did that, our world would be more just, it would be more compassionate, and certainly there would be less war in our world. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Four, three, two, one. Welcome back to Just Love. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We talk about what's going on in the world. And this weekend, you know, we do celebrate Memorial Day in the United States. We honor those who have died in military service. We do it in a way, though, that recognizes that probably the greatest tribute we could pay to those who are in uniform in the military is to avoid war. Because in war, it is those who are in the military who suffer the greatest death, fatalities, injuries. Now, we have, we hear and we know one of the tragedies of war is that civilians also get killed, whether accidentally or intentionally, as tragically, it seems that the situation in the Ukraine is where civilians sometimes appear to be targeted by Russia. um, And that is just very, very problematic. In fact, I believe one of the soldiers there is being brought up as a war criminal because of his killing of a civilian. So while, but on these days, the best thing we can do is pray for and try to do our best to create a world in which there is uh, no war. Um, Tom, what are you going to do Memorial Day weekend? Do you have uh, plans? I know we just learned a moment of silence at 3 p.m., but uh, what do you got planned for Memorial Day? Generally, Monsignor, I go up uh, to see my folks and the family gets together for a barbecue. And one very nice thing is our local town, Pelham, has a parade. So what they do is they have a parade. They come. And uh, one thing they do is they actually read on Flanders Field. Um, So we gather and we read. And so it's very appropriate, I think, Monsignor, when you mentioned about avoiding war. They do honor those who've lost their lives from Pelham in the war. But we also read in Flanders Field, which, of course, is sort of a, a tome against war. So I yeah. think that's something very appropriate that you bring up. Yeah, it's you know, it's it's interesting. I um, I mean, my age is such that I was not around during World War Two nor Korea. But uh, I do know that um, that in different periods of our history, there's been a different kind of tension with regard to wars and particular wars. It does seem to me today we are in a place in which there is a great deal of respect for those in the military and those who kind of do risk their lives in in war. So on this Memorial Day weekend, first prayer, peace, that no more people die in war, specific prayer for peace in Ukraine, and peace also in those countries where there is internal violence with civil war and prayer for those who have given their lives in service of defending the country. Thank you for being with us on Just Love, Just Love God, Just Love Your Neighbor, Just Love Yourself. Our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. 
the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.